Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. When Kevin and I first started doing this podcast, we had a dream list of folks we wanted to get, and today's guest was at the top of that list. It's true. Uh, Rob and I are really excited today because we both grew up listening to the music direction and vocal arrangements of today's guest. And you guys may have as well. Uh, here, here's some of the credits. Uh, name, applause, of course, line, Lakaja Fall. And cult classics like Mac and Mabel, Dear World, The Grand Tour, Woman of the Year, and Foxy. <laughs> and those are only like a couple of the 24 Broadway credits he has. You've just exhausted me, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> To tell us what it was like to collaborate with Jerry Herman, Michael Bennett, Kander and Ebb, Strauss and Adams, Comden and Green, and just about every other genius in the American musical theater, here is Maestro Don Pippin. Oh. Well, thank you for that wonderful intro. Thank you, know, you for a wonderful we career. Are like beside ourselves. <laughs> you know, you, you reminded me of a story when you is that John Kander. There was a, a wonderful English comedian, B. Lilly, Beatrice mm-hmm. Lilly, Beatrice who Lilly. had a Broadway show. And she had a piano team working with her, and they couldn't go on tour. So I was hired to be her pianist, and I needed, it was for two pianos, so John became my partner. So we were the two pianos that went out with her. Now, B was having a little trouble with her memory at that point, remembering things. So when we opened in uh, Coconut Grove, Florida, uh, at the end of the show, B came down and said, and I would like to thank Edie and Rack. And one woman leaned over and said, which one's Edie? And John pointed to me. And to this day, that's the way we communicate. Are you serious? I'm Edie. Whenever I get an email, I see Edie. I know it's from John. And I always send his rack. So that's been our relationship through these years. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, I love that you guys have known each other for so long. Oh, and that you knew years, each other for years. Before you were doing your, what would become your professions. Yes. I mean, you were, you were... Where did you grow up, Don? Well, Tennessee, basically, although I was born in Macon, Georgia. But I, at age three, I went to Tennessee, in Knoxville, Tennessee, yeah. until I was just starting uh, grammar school and everything. And then I moved to Chattanooga, which became my, when I was a teenager, yeah. I was in Chattanooga, yeah. which is sort of a much more metropolitan city than Knoxville. Did you have opportunities to see theater or music? Oh, no, no. The only thing in, in Chattanooga was that on Saturday, I always listened to the Metropolitan Opera on the yes. radio. But theater, I don't think there was any. Not in those days. There is now. It's amazing how that city has changed. Yes. They finally had me back after 38 years as a guest conductor for their symphony. And That's cool. It, it was All such right. a thrill to, to see my name on the marquee of the yeah. theater that I used to see movies in. Oh. I used to sit out there and watch the movies, and now I'm on stage yeah. with their symphony. It was such a thrill oh. to me, a very private thrill. Yeah. But when I was living there, no, it was a very a country town. Well, how did you get your musical training? I mean, how did you find the, 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 the desire? 
I don't know how the desire happened. You know, I left I left Chattanooga just to get away from home. Mm, okay. And okay. The, uh, this is after I'd been in the service and the Army and everything. Yeah. And I didn't want to, to hurt my family's feelings of just saying, I want to get out of here. Yeah. So... Somebody mentioned the Juilliard School of Music, and I knew that was in New York. So I said, I want to go to the Juilliard. Now, that they understood. So I came to New York to the Juilliard School. Wow. That's what got me to New York. And did you, were you playing the piano at a young oh, age? Oh, yes. Oh, I yeah. started piano when I was five years old. Oh, okay. I, had a, I was lucky. I had a fabulous teacher. I was living in Knoxville then. Right. I had a fabulous teacher, Evelyn Miller, who was brilliant. I never had to unlearn anything. I just kept building on what she she was a yeah. fabulous teacher and was kind of like my second mother in a way so yeah. she was very close to me but piano work I was doing you know in Chattanooga I was playing at clubs and things and for singers my first stepmother I introduced to my father I lost my mother when I was 10 years yes. old yes and um, so I'd met Sarah because she was a singer at the church and I introduced to my father and romance started and they got married but Sarah, because she was a singer, was involved in all of the social clubs of music. So I got to very early get used to going to these clubs yeah. and talking to people and presenting myself as a soloist, too. Mm-hmm. And so that's due to my first stepmother. She really developed my my calmness of being around people and yeah. being a performer. I learned that very early. So that was kind of my life in Chattanooga. Were you in the Army before Juilliard? Or? Oh, yes, way before, yes. Okay. I went. I went what I did is... The, the day I graduated from, I went to a military school, Baylor Military School, prep school. Right. The day I graduated from there, I enlisted in the Army this two days later because I didn't want to be drafted. Right. And I was very interested in medicine then, not music. And I knew I could be sent to medical school with the Army. So I enlisted and I went to University of Alabama, they sent me, mm-hmm. for pre-med. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was until they suddenly, they swore they would never pull us out of that, but they did. Because they needed soldiers, so I was then pulled into active service. Wow! And but I, when I went over to the uh, Philippine Islands, I went to Pacific. What year was it? Nineteen forty-four, nineteen forty-five, forty-six. Yeah. So long right there. near the end. Okay. Yeah. And so we were sent to the Pacific, and I was a frontline medic. A frontline. And once the war was over, and you know, I remember the day that the atomic bomb was dropped. I heard all the news. Yeah. We were in the Philippines. Yeah. And my company, it was one of the first to go to Japan. I was one of the first of the hundred men who had our feet on Japanese soil. And that's where I stayed for about a year. Wow. And that's when I switched to special service and got in with the orchestra and got into entertaining. When I was in Japan. In Japan. I got in and it was marvelous. And I also was an organist and we played in one of the officers' clubs. I actually did a dinner thing for uh, General MacArthur and his wife. Uh, just just them. There was not for the public. And I was at the piano and played all the music for the for their dinner. Yeah. He he was not very gracious. He never even looked at me or came over to say anything, but his wife did. She mm. was very charming. Came over to thank me for playing. Wow. But that was the big big celebrity that yeah. I played <laughs> well, for. Well, he kind of was, yeah, I'll yeah. say. By the way, in the Army, when I first went, the gentleman that I met almost the first day I was there, Anthony Benedetto, who later became, as we know, Tony, Tony Bennett. Bennett. And we performed for the USO. We did a lot. And then, of course, he was sent, I think, to Europe, and I went to the Pacific. But years later, in New York, he hired me to be his conductor, so I toured with him. Suddenly, he was a star, and I was pretty well-known yeah. at that point, too. And we so finally worked together, and we, we went to London. Oh. Um, we went I don't know, all over the place, Las Vegas. What a grateful circle! What a yeah. grateful circle! Well, he's a great. He was a great guy to work with. And he's still, he's still working. Oh, still yeah. working. And at that age, working. it's amazing. But he knows exactly what his voice can well, do. And keeping it current. I mean, he just did that album oh, with yeah. Lady Gaga. Well, Come Lady on! Gaga. Oh, I mean, well, that was fabulous. That's genius. Yeah. I happen to be a big fan of hers. Yeah. And the two of them together is magic. But but he is so brilliant because he knows how to use his voice. Still, he knows exactly what works. Yeah. Do you remember the first show that you saw on Broadway? I really don't. Yeah. I have a feeling it was probably a play because I had a couple of friends who were loved plays, and probably I went with them to see. Could it have been Streetcar Named Desire? Yes, that would have been the right. Okay, I, I remember seeing it. It was very early in my career, that's for sure. Yeah, It's a good one to start off with, yeah. I would say. <laughs> that sets that's the bar. <laughs> that sets the bar pretty high. Ankles Away? Ankles Away, that that's was it. one of your first. I mean, it was the dance, first. Yeah, dance The first time on, on dance. But dance music, and of course, the marvelous um, Tony Charmley was the oh. uh, choreographer. Uh-huh. And I'd worked with Tony. See, before I ever got to Broadway, I was very active in television, early television. 
in New York. Okay. Tony had been a choreographer, and we did a show called Stop the Music. We had a lot of dance music. That's mm-hmm. when I started writing dance mm-hmm. music. So I got the call for him to come in to do this big jazz ballet, mm-hmm. which I did. Mm-hmm. And the show was so-so. It wasn't a bad show. It was fun, but it wasn't a big, huge success. Later, of course, I found out that somebody who became very important had been there to hear my jazz ballet, and that was Jerry Robbins, who called me in to work on a couple of shows, which I didn't want to do dance writing anymore. Right. But he'd certainly recommended me to a lot of people, so yeah. it was good that somebody, and he became pretty important, I'd say. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah. <laughs> Would you explain to our listeners, what does a dance arranger do? Well, what you do is you go in, you first, uh, you, you're, you're sitting, in the, I do, I, I like to sit at the piano and be the pianist for it. And you're working with a choreographer, and he has ideas, and he wants to do 16 bars and 3-4 and 4-4, and maybe this is jazzy, and maybe this is very classical. Mm-hmm. And you begin to just see that you, the music must certainly go with what it is he choreographically. And sometimes, if you have a good idea, you'll present to him, hey, how about something like this? And you'll say, oh, that's great. He likes that, so he'll choreograph to what you did. It works both ways. Yeah. Depends on who, who the who chooreographer is. Yeah. Using the themes of the composer, but also beefing them up. That's right. Stretching them. Absolutely. Whatever Absolutely. You have to do. I think sometimes the public thinks that the composer of a show wrote everything. Yeah. Very seldom. So not true. Probably Sondheim might do more writing. I've seen some of his sketches that he turns yeah. in. It's pretty complete. Yeah. But usually a composer is not expected to do that. No, that's right. What makes a good conductor? Well, I think, first of all, the first thing I think with a conductor is I think your basic personality is important. I don't think just having a stick in your hand is the best thing to do. But I think, of course, you not only have to know your material, know what you would like to do with it, but you also have got to know what other people feel about the material, the composer. I say working with people. You've got to know how to work with people to be a good conductor. That means working with the musicians. You got to be aware of what they're going through, mm-hmm. especially when you're doing a performance. You realize that you know maybe they've had a bad day themselves and they're not playing their best, and you've got to sort of encourage them, but you can't go up to them and say, "Why are you lousy tonight?" <laughs> you know, that's not going to help you. You're not going to get yeah. anything better. Yeah. Now, your first assistant conducting is Irma LaDuce. Yes, that's <laughs> the, my first time in a Broadway pit. How did that come about? Yeah. It's interesting. Before that, as I said, I'd done a lot of things. There used to be something called industrial shows. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Automobile shows would do them especially, presenting mm-hmm. their new products. Right. And there was the Ford Company, and they had like six companies. I remember we all rehearsed six companies at one time in a big space. It was maddening. Stan Lebowski had one of the companies. Oh, yeah. And Stan and I became friends during that show. I never thought to call him, but I saw his show listed, or M. LaDuce listed, and somebody said, well, why don't you try to get, the, you know Stan, why don't you try to get the job as pianist? And so I called him, and he said, you'd be interested in working in a pit? I said, you, absolutely, and I got the job from Stan. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> That's exactly the way it happened. Were there any lessons you learned from watching him? Yes, because Stan, I thought, worked far too hard with the orchestra. They got so they would ignore him, and, and he would then, he wasn't aware of that. Now, I don't want anybody to think I'm criticizing. He was a marvelous conductor. He was brilliant in the theater. He knew music so well. But as a conductor on the podium, sometimes he would be so heavy the way he was conducting. And we would start playing heavily because orchestras will begin to play the way mm-hmm. you're conducting. That's the one thing I learned not to do. So, uh, But I had studied quite a bit, so I was very eager to go. But that's when I got my first real chance. to. Right. I did a couple of matinees, and Merrick, the, uh, David Merrick, the producer, yeah. saw me do them. And so when the show went to Las Vegas... He hired me to take it to Vegas. But Stan had left at this time. I didn't push him out. He had left for another job. So I was going to take over the New York company. So I went to Vegas and did it with Juliet Prowse starring in it. Oh, my. And she was marvelous. Oh, she was wonderful. And I tell you something very funny. You know, she had had a a big affair with Frank Sinatra. That Mm. was well known. Mm -hmm. Now, Juliet and I were staying at a motel not together, but we were having a little bit of a Mm -hmm. little... (laughs) And we'd be out by the pool, and the phone would ring, and it was Sinatra. I didn't know it was Sinatra then, but she'd pick up the phone, and she'd say, I told you not to call me again, and she'd hang up. And then I realized it was Sinatra, and I thought, oh, my God, if he knows that I'm with her, and he'll get his, his henchmen, and they'll come rub <laughs> me out. Yeah. They'll come rub me out. <laughs> that was the danger as a conductor. <laughs> and you were like, I mean, you were in your early 20s. Yeah, that's you right, were, yes. Gosh. And then how did Oliver come your way? Well, now, Oliver became an easier thing to come my way, and daringly so, because, remember, David Merrick produced Emma LaDuce, and he'd seen me and hired me for another show, right. and I heard he was bringing over Oliver. 
And so I told his, his um, assistant, I said, get me an appointment. I want to talk to him. She said, you won't stand a chance because every well-known Broadway conductor wants the show. In those days, there were well-known Broadway oh, conductors. definitely. And um, I said, well, get me an appointment. I'd like to at least hear him say no. And she got me an appointment, and I went into his all red and black office. It was wow. very intimidating. Everything is red or black. And he's sitting at the desk. He looks like the devil. He yeah. really did. Everything but horns. And I went up to him, and he said, yes. He acted like he didn't even know who I was. Right. And I said, Mr. Merrick, you're bringing over Oliver, and I want to be musical director of that show. He said, why should I give it to you? He said, but every well-known conductor wants that show. And I did something. I don't think I could do it today, but I walked right up. I practically put my nose against his, and I said, because I love the story and the script. I love the score, and no one, no one can do it as well as I can. And he looked so shocked at me saying that. And he left me standing there for, it seemed like, two hours. I felt like if there was a trap door, I'd pull it and fall out of the room. Totally. Exit. And, this, and suddenly, my surprise, he said, okay, you're going to have the show. You better be as good as you think you are. Wow. And that's the way I got the show. And by the way, way down the line, when suddenly I was nominated and won a Tony for Yeah, that. you won a Tony for it. And I leave the table, David Merrick, we're all at the same table. And I go back, and he puts his arm around me, and he says, you are as good as you thought you were. He remembered that I'd he said did. that. Yes. He totally did. He must have seen something in that tenacity that he connected to, you know, that he... Not, not just for me, which, of yeah. course, it's marvelous that he did, but I think that's why he was a brilliant producer. Yeah. He had great instincts. He could take risks, and He and always knew who to put together and how to do things. Yeah. He, was a, he truly was a genius. We don't, I don't think, at least to my knowledge, we have anybody like him today. No, we hear so many of the... He, he has a lot of stories that go with David Merrick. You oh, know, yes. Horror stories. Oh, yes. The, the, the horn stories, as it oh, were. Yes. But, but he, he wouldn't have, we wouldn't be talking about him if he wasn't brilliant as well. I oh, mean. he was he was brilliant. Yeah. It's, of course, you know, in those days, a show, I think Mame, although he, that wasn't his show, but Mame, I think, was produced for like 350000 which today would be probably $12 million. Please, yeah. Jesus. So one producer could raise that money. Yeah. Today you have to have 20, 30 producers to get that yeah. money. Yeah. That's one of the or things. Or Disney, yeah. yeah <laughs> Disney. I, I, but that's one of the things I think that is, is, is not helpful to Broadway, that you have to have that many people All involved. those voices, too, all those yeah. cooks in the kitchen. Uh, what lessons did you take away from conducting for the first time on your own? As I remember, I was very happy. <laughs> I was never... I've never been an insecure person, and in, 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 I mean, it's not that I don't think about how important it is. I do. I've always felt I don't do anything unless I feel I'm prepared to do it. Mm-hmm. I've turned down things that I do not think I'm ready to do, mm-hmm. and I won't do it. Mm-hmm. So I think if you're well prepared and you know what you're going to do, why should you be nervous? You do it. is everything. Yeah. yeah. Were there any big projects you turned down? I don't think I've ever turned anything down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and then, and so then, in one year, you do Oliver, you get the Tony Award for that, but then you also take 110 in the Shade. Yes. And very quickly, I'm so sorry, before we go to 110 in the Shade, what exactly did you win the Tony Award for? Musical direction. That's just, right, everyone. Music direction. So at one point, the Tony Award committee recognized. That, yes, they did. I think it was only after one year after me. Somebody else did, I think, did get another one. I was yeah. not the last person. Then they dropped it because they decided that no one understood what a musical director does. An orchestrator does? <laughs> that we can That's rate. a big question. <laughs> <laughs> There's no layers to that at all. No. <laughs> one of my favorite scores, 110 in the Shade. Oh, I love it. How did that come about? You know, I don't remember why Harvey Schmidt called me. I really don't remember what the process was. All I know is that I was at his apartment, and he and Tom Jones presented, started presenting the music, and I just flipped. I just thought, because the score, you know, it's interesting how they write, there's almost a classical overtone to some of their writing, yes, the way they write. definitely. And I had not had anything like that, and I was so intrigued with it and mm-hmm. fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. And to work the show was really a wonderful experience, especially working with, with, with uh, Harvey Schmidt. And because he's a composer, and he's a fabulous pianist. Right. He has hands. He can play at the piano, and his hands are so big, he plays chords and things that my hand won't reach. Oh, I don't have small you can hands. Tell him scores when you try oh. to play them. You're like, how? Why are there so many notes here? Like, it's brilliant. And you know, yeah. he's not a studied. Uh, he it's all self-learn. He, he barely writes oh, music. I don't know? think he can. Yeah. yeah. I don't think That's he reads or writes well. it. Yeah. But boy, he sure knows it. <laughs> That's what counts. Incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. But you know, Jerry Herman admits, you know, Jerry is not a reader or writer uh-huh, of music. Uh-huh. And, but you'd never know it. Yeah, no, no, no. Oh, no. no. You get in your orchestra rehearsal with him. You're him saying, wait a minute. 
The third of that chord should be a flat, not a sharp. Wow. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. he hears everything. Totally. Yeah. Oh, God. Thanks, <laughs> God. Amazing. Tell us some experiences about working on 110 in the shade. Anything that you remember specifically? Did it change a lot on the road or anything? Oh, yes. That yeah. was a, that's a show we had to really work with. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the main problem we had was Joe Anthony, who was the director, was also the director of the, the play. Mm. And he did that, the, the rainmaker. Yes, oh. and that is not always, I think, the best thing to have the directors that close to a property. Mm-hmm. Also, the um, the author had great troubles cutting, making cuts, which you have to make. Right. And he would come in with a list of cuts, and he'd cut the word but, the word and, the. <laughs> you didn't get a real cut. And so that was our big problem with the show, mm-hmm. getting it so you could run it within mm-hmm. the time limit. Mm-hmm. But Inga Swenson... Mm. I love, I love that woman. It's a shame that her career has gone sort of comedic on television. Mm-hmm. She's never really had a wonderful thing to show her great talent. Mm-hmm. I thought 110. And when I listen to the recording and hear her sing, how beautifully she sang that score. And uh, she was just a delight for the whole show. Now, on 110, I had to rewrite the vocal arrangers. I didn't do the original. They, okay. uh, they had hired um, was a well-known vocal arranger whose credit is on there. But he had written great vocal arrangements, but you have to be careful when you're right for the stage because it's not going to be a group just standing there singing. Right. It's going to be spread out. You've got to realize it's got to work, even yeah. spread out. Yeah. And I think I understood that why I've had very good success with vocal ra- yeah. writing for the stage. So I had to take these quite often and rewrite them, although they, I had not done the originals. It's a great album. I don't really, I've it's listened, awesome. Oh, I just am very thrilled with yeah. that album. It's tough. That's not easy music. And the thing that I'm so glad in that show... We kept casting. We couldn't get the young, the young, the youngest brother, uh-huh. Jimmy. I Jimmy. think is it. Yep. And I kept saying, I know just the perfect person. And they kept seeing other people. And finally, after about five days of auditioning, and no one they were happy with, especially Agnes DeMille. <laughs> and I said, I know the. And finally, Merrick said, Who is it? And where is it? And I said, it's, His name is Scooter Tig, and he's in California. And I just worked with him in a nightclub act. And Merrick said, okay, I'm going to bring him here. And if he went on hire him, you're going to pay his airfare. I said, okay, okay. And they brought him in, and he came to me, and he was all dressed in a suit and tie and everything. And I said, uh-uh, wrong look for this. Take off the tie, take off that jacket. And he had a pair of blue jeans. I said, put on the blue jeans and mm-hmm. a shirt. That's it. Mm-hmm. The minute he walked on stage, Agnes DeMille, because just the way he walked on stage, she said, I think he can move. I said, he's a good dancer. And she had him to dance. She fell in love. The director loved him. Also, I'd gone over the monologue, the main one they made him audition. And it told him everything the director wanted to hear in that. So I directed him. Brilliant. And he read it. And the director was floored the way he did that monologue. He just had every point (laughs) he wanted. He gets it. He got the job. Yes, he did. Oh, that's really cool. And you didn't have to pay the airfare. (laughs) Nope, I did not. Hey, listeners, Kevin and I need your help. Yes, we need your help. Please, please, please. We need your stars. We need your reviews, you guys, on iTunes so we can start to climb those iTunes rating charts. It's simple. Open iTunes, click on the iTunes store, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends. Then click on Ratings and Reviews. Under the Customer Reviews, click Write a Review. Then let us know what you think from one to five stars. If you need some help, Think of one star being Carol Channing and Paul Lynn in the road company of the last five years, and five stars being free front row tickets to Hamilton. (laughs) Although, when you think about it, I actually would give five stars to the road company of Carol Channing and Paul Lynn in the last five years, because I think that would be Uh, awesome. I would love to hear, can I hear moving too fast as Paul? (laughs) (laughs) That's the the one I really want. She's a six the goddess. (laughs) And through Erica Schwartz and Danica Weiss. And the Handelman twins. <laughs> so there you go. You can also leave a comment if you like. That's it. That's your reviews. It. Send us Thank your reviews, you. friends. Thank you. Noel Coward, I heard, was a backstage visitor, too. <laughs> well, he's one of those rare people that every time I even hear his name, I kind of think, like, God, and I had a chance to at least talk with him and yeah. know him. Because he's truly a legend. He could do everything. He, <laughs> his opinions could be quite... Quite extreme. Colorful. <laughs> when he didn't like something, or when he did like something. I met him when I was uh, in London. In fact, when I was in London that time, I met Noel Coward, Marlena Dietrich. Oh That's when she was so big doing yeah. her thing. And I was really just, I don't know how I met those people. It just, they come into my life some way. But I love knowing them. 
Yeah. And, and not necessarily working with them, but sure. just knowing them yeah. in the business. Oh, yeah, it's special. That's cool. That's I, I have to ask about Foxy uh, because it, it's, it's a show that not a lot of our listeners may know about, but also it involved a choreographer that uh, is very important in musical theater history, Jack Cole. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. That not a lot of people, I mean, he influenced so many other he dance sure people did. that we talk about today, like Michael Bennett and Bob Fosse. But yeah. Jack Cole was had a language and a style of dance that was very revolutionary. But I, uh, memories of work, working with him or working on that show. Well, you know, the thing is, anybody will tell you that's worked with him. The problem with Jack Cole, he never finished a number. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it just I, and I think it's because he he didn't want to have to move away from it. Yeah, I think he, he had it. a reason. He would he would get to where you knew you hadn't quite finished a number, but then he would start on another number. <laughs> and he would have maybe three or four numbers that he was working on, but yeah. no ending on any of them. <laughs> and um, this was kind of maddening because I was having to make sure we had a dance room that had a finish. Yeah. What do we do? We don't have the choreography yet. How are we going to finish? And how can I write it? Yeah. But finally, of course, he did, he did eventually get them finished, but it was really qu- quite a problem to do that. You know, John Davidson made his debut on Foxy. No, really? Do you know he was the ingenue, the, not the ingenue, what do you call it, the juvenile, yeah. the juvenile. He sang, he sang a number called Talk to Me Baby. And Burt Lahr was in it? Oh, it? that was Burt's brilliant musical. Yeah. <laughs> See, the, Bert, pro- let me, the time. Let me, let me tell you, the problem with the show, they had done so many versions of it before they got to Broadway. That thing started up uh, somewhere in the north. I had nothing to do with it mm-hmm. that early. I only did the Broadway. Mm-hmm. But they had done so many different versions of it, and Bird had been in all of them. Mm-hmm. The director had done them all. And so by the time they had so many things going on in their minds, I don't think it could always say exactly what they should do. Was Ben Franklin in Paris just as difficult as Foxy? Oh, no. Ben Franklin was sort of fun. Yeah? Because was Robert was Preston. Special, yeah. <clears throat> Full disclosure, because there, there were some ghost-written songs. In, um, oh, yeah, well, that's when Jerry came in. That's right. The, the Jerry Herman. Well, that's why that show was so important to me, because... Yeah. When the producers decided to bring in, they said, we're bringing in another lyricist, musician, to write scores. I didn't know who they were bringing in. And then I met Jerry for the first time. The minute we met, we liked each other. Yeah. We just There was a personality thing between us right away before he even had to work on his... And then he started writing, and he wrote so fast for that show. He did some wonderful things for that show. What makes him such a great songwriter? Well, I think, number one, the first thing I will say with Jerry Herman is it got to have a melody. He instinctively knows how to write melodies, and they are not simple melodies. Some of them are extremely complex. And I think... And and he's a self-taught pianist. He doesn't know chordal structure in terms of the way I would know it, but he does know the name of every chord. You can't fool him on that. And he sort of taught himself that. He just has a, a, an ear for music. He has a feeling. I think it's a feeling he has. Yeah. And then, of course, but he, you know, he writes words and music at the same time. He does not write a song and then set a lyric to it. No, it's right away. He starts right away. Here's the melody. It's hello, Dolly, da Right away he has the lyric. And what he does next, once he finds his starting, now he decides what's going to be the last few bars. So where is he going lyrically with uh-huh. the song? Then he knows, and, and quite often he said, in fact, I saw him do this one. He's got the beginning of it. He's got the close off. And he now knows lyrically what he wants to do. And then he said, then it's easy to do what goes in between. The journey, yeah. Mm. yeah. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And that's the way he writes. And then you guys get to work together with him working there officially on MAME. MAME, of course. Now, MAME is a show from the beginning to the end. There was never a problem. It had the right cast. It had the right director. It had the right uh, choreographer. Anna White was brilliant. Mm. I was there for my department. Even the rehearsal pianists were brilliant. Everything on that show. 
from the very beginning. Now, that brings up something which I really know is very important for Broadway, which is not done enough. That show did not go into rehearsal until it was ready to go into rehearsal. Uh-huh. The script was finished. The songs were finished. Everything was ready to do it, mm-hmm. to teach that show to the performers. Mm-hmm. And the right performers were hired for every role. It was Jerry Herman that got Angela. Angela Ember was never on the list to do that role. Who was on the list? Oh, any, any big name that existed in those days. We, we saw everybody. There were so many. I mean, Oh, yeah, we I saw mean. every well-known name you could think of. And uh, none of them seemed right at all. And Jerry, I'd seen Angela do uh, Anyone Can Whistle. Oh, that yeah. That short show. I saw her do that, and I loved her in it. But I'd known her before that. I, I, I'd gone out with her once when she was doing a play on Broadway. Oh. I didn't know her well, but I had met her and been out with her. Mm-hmm. I liked her. But Jerry kept saying, and he really foxed them into it. Because what he did, he personally contacted her. He worked with her on three of the songs. Nobody knew he was doing this. I didn't even know he was doing this. Yeah. And then she, they got an audition that she would come in, and he told her exactly what to do. And I remember she came in with a, she had a fur coat over her shoulders. She didn't have her arms through the sleeves, just over and she, they said, Miss Angela Lansbury, she came walking on stage, and she just took the coat and threw it. <laughs> this fur coat goes on the wow. stage. And she walks over, and, and suddenly Jerry's gone to the pit and starts playing, and she starts singing, Light the Candles. Well, she knocked us out. We yeah. suddenly heard her sing this opening song, and we'd never heard anybody sing it but Jerry. Yeah. It just everything. I mean, she practically had the job the minute she opened her mouth. Yeah. And then the director had her to read a scene. It was just brilliant what yeah. she did. So she was, I'd say, hired on the spot. <laughs> you saw that audition. That's and, amazing. And, and Angela is still in a very good touch. We just email all the yeah. time. And we get together. And yeah. In fact, we've already planned. You know, we ha- we have a, In May, we have our 50th anniversary of Maine coming up. Isn't that incredible? And we've been in touch with as many people that are still with us. Unfortunately, some aren't. Yeah. And she's going to be there, of course. How special. Happy We're going to have it at Sardis. We're going to do it at Sardis. It's so special. Yeah. Then after Maine comes Dear World. Angela, the, the problem with Dear World, and Angela was brilliant at it. She really played the character yeah. with the makeup. But her public didn't want to see that. No. Her public wanted to see Maine again. Yeah. Mm. They didn't want to see her playing. It was an so eight. soon, too. Just a yeah. couple years. <clears> they didn't want to see her playing an an 80-old lady. That's yeah. what she was, playing yeah. 80. And just everything. I think Jerry wrote some lovely, lovely score I for that. I love that score. Oh. Then applause. Yes, I survived two shows with Lauren Bacall. <laughs> I adored her. I think she was absolutely a fabulous lady. You know, the I was taken... Uh, she had total approval of cast and staff and I was taken to her voice lesson wow. the first time and I heard her finish a voice lesson and then we went down to the coffee shop to get acquainted and we had no more sat down and she said well you heard me sing what do you think of my voice and that almost <laughs> threw me that she would ask that right away and I know and I'd heard that one thing she didn't like is people just not being direct with her she'd like direct people I said well you sound like um, a very musical moose and she gave me this stare but I got the job I couldn't well, describe I couldn't He's think of honest, anyway. you know. <laughs> well, in a way, it did have that. And I ended up doing two shows with her. Yeah. And the score has a very contemporary sound. Oh, yeah. applause. Well, you know, applause was supposedly, you know, the, the rock sound was yeah. beginning to come in. Yeah. And I remember, <laughs> I'll tell you a story. Charlie Strauss, the composer. Yeah. When he did the score for me, he, so I could hear the score, and he sat at the piano and did it himself. And he has a very unique way of doing his songs. And when he finished and everything, he said, now, Don, I've got to be perfectly honest with you about something. He said, I, I just wonder if you're not too old to conduct this show. And I looked at him. I said, Charles, if I'm too old to conduct it, you were far too old to write it. That's right. It made its point. <laughs> what was it like to collaborate with Cy Coleman on Seesaw? <laughs> now, Cy Coleman, who is, was a genius, no doubt about it. A piano player. Yeah. Oh, Jazz. Oh, yeah. I I tell you, his personality was just like his jazz playing. To give you an idea of his energy. But also, not an organized person in in my way of thinking. You always had to sort of lead him to everything you you needed. I remember I came in, by the way, I wasn't supposed to do that show. Uh, Marvelous uh, John Morris, who was a big Mm -hmm. dance writer, was supposed to do that show. And something came up at the last minute he couldn't. That's when I got called. But it was like, I only had like about four days before they were going in rehearsal. So I got with uh, Cy to go across the score. and he would play, but what he does when he starts to do something, he'll hit a chord and he'll say, I'll say mm-hmm. He's, now you know we could do this, and he'll change the chord. <laughs> but maybe even this. And then, like a real well, jazz. Well, but not only that, you realize you're, t- you're taking 15 minutes on a one-minute number. And, and I suddenly realized that, it, that had to, it would take us three days. I had to get out of there and write this stuff. <laughs> 
And so finally I said to Cy, every time he'd play so I said, that's pretty good, Cy. <laughs> oh my God, how did you come up with that? And then we'd move on. And then, okay, so musical theater fans, we love Mac and Mabel. Oh, so do I. We are dying to see it come back. We are dying to see it get its full due. What were your experiences like working on that show? It was a tough show because it didn't... It didn't want to work for some reason, and yet it, it seemed like it should. Right. It made sense. Great story. It's got great music. Fabulous story. Uh, I tell you, this is only my, my, my own opinion, and I will always stick with it. I think the pairing of Robert Preston with uh, Bernadette Peters yeah. was a wrong combination of personalities mm-hmm. together. I think they're both brilliant. I think Bernadette's very talented at certain things she does, but I do not think she was Mabel Norman, and I just don't think that worked. And I've all, I think I'm the only person connected with the show that would say that mm-hmm. uh, she is a uh, Bernadette if you ever hear this you're a great talent honey it's just I'm talking yeah. about casting but I just think the two of them together there was never something that made you believe this was That's some that together. was such a romance that the woman ends up killing herself taking drugs because she can't live without him that's a pretty strong character she has to play yeah and she did it, but to me, it just didn't come across right. Mm. And I, I will always feel that. Now, I've seen, you know, Mac and Mabel's been done about three times in London. Not London, but in England. Yeah. And I've seen two of the productions. And I think they work far better than New York because the casting was much stronger. Right. Still has, I think it needs to be neatened up a bit here and there. But I think it's a marvelous show. I do hope a yeah. version would come back. I'm sure would, someone will t- it, tackle it at happen. some point. Because it's, the, it has all of the elements, really, for it to be a if it you, certainly does. But I tell you, if we're jumping ahead to Jerry's other show, like Haja Full, yeah. of course, we opened in Boston. You know how daring it is to have opened in Boston with a show like, like Haja Full with that theme? Yeah, right. Yeah, well, that's a little dangerous. Yeah. In the first act, as you recall, there's a lovely ballad called Song on the Sand. Mm-hmm. The very first performance, we were doing the show, and we were all very nervous, by the way, how the show would go in Boston. We realized that might have been a big mistake to open it in Boston. But we're doing it, and we get to Song on the Sand. I see this lovely couple sitting right to my left on the front row. I saw the lady reach over and take her husband's hand and put it up to her heart. And I thought, the magic is working. He did it. This, with a, with, so daring, a man singing a love song to another man. That's not, not usually done, especially in Boston. Yeah. And that this woman did this because the magic of the material was working. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think we got to hit show, and indeed we did. When you first read or listened to the score of Lacage, what were your initial impressions? I loved it, except when I first heard it, it was over in Jerry's apartment. The best of times was not a song. It was just a device. It was just like the eight-bar theme. Mm repeated twice it wasn't a full song and i'm the one that night as i was leaving i said jerry you should write a bridge to that song he said it doesn't need it i said yes it does you write a bridge to that and make it a full song and as i was going out the door i turned to him and i said by the way make the notes long you got enough short notes in the first eight bars the next morning he called i pick up the phone and he says no da, 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 da. he started singing the bridge for I said, wow. that's yes. it. That's it. Don is responsible for every song played at every bar mitzvah, <laughs> wedding. Oh, really? Is that where it's used? <laughs> it's, it's everywhere. So thank you, Don. Well, I love that song. And it's I love the fact song. that it is a complete song. And I use it in my concerts all the time. Yeah. George Hearn yes. and Gene Barry. Oh, yes. What was it like for these two men going into territory that musical theater actors did not go into? Well, in George, George, I think, was much more comfortable, except for the role he was having to play. But Gene Barry you know, had not been on stage in years. Gene had come from the theater much earlier in his mm-hmm. career, but he had become this fabulous movie and television guy. Mm-hmm. And by the way, one of the nicest people you mm-hmm. ever could ever have known. And uh, most people didn't realize that early in his career, he was a singer. Mm-hmm. That's what he was known. He was a musical performer. He wasn't just an actor in yeah. his early career. So he had more, uh, it, was more t- it was tougher for him to get back into live performing. George, of course, was strictly a live performer in right. those days. But the thing with George, it was so hard. And the director, um, Arthur Lawrence, was very brilliant about this. He get, had the high heels. He put them over. They said, now, George, when you feel you're ready to put those on, you put them on. The day that George put them on, the whole company, like, <laughs> watching him in mm-hmm. high heels. Because he was ready for them. And there he had found his character enough. Yeah. Because he never played he never played some, some put-on female. He played a very real female right. when he was Zaza. Yeah. And that's why I think it works so well. I've seen the show done where, unfortunately, they, they kid around with it. You can't wink at it, no. You, know, you have to respect it, it. And then you don't have respect for it when that happens. Yeah. But he was brilliant doing that, and getting used to the high heels, I think, was his hardest thing in the role for him. Mm. Uh, Let's go back to... A chorus line? A chorus yeah. line. 
What a, uh, I mean, obviously, it's a major chapter in all of musical theater history yeah, for the obvious um, reasons. We always call it the ACL. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the ACL show. But, you know, it's very interesting. It was Michael who called me for... Michael it wasn't, wasn't Marvin Hammers that called me. It was Michael who huh. called me. Uh, of course, I'd worked with him very, very neatly in the other show. Mm-hmm. I went over to his apartment. Now, his apartment, everything <laughs> was black. Everything is black. Such a dark apartment. <laughs> And he was telling me about this show, and, and, and he was doing it with dancers, and he wanted somebody who knew that it had some dance writing ability right. as well as conducting because it was going to be dancers. And that's kind of the way it started. So I said, absolutely, you know, I would love to do it with you. But now I didn't realize that when I said that, there was no show. They hadn't even created it yet. No, not, not in a permanent thing. They, they had already had some of the interviews with the dancers, but there was not a finished script, and there was no music. So when I first go start rehearsals with the chorus line, we have scenes. I think we had one song. This is at the public, probably. Yeah. yeah, well, we weren't even there. We were just in the rehearsal studio. Oh, okay. But the, the, it was a, a musical with no music, <laughs> really. <laughs> That's insane. And, and, but this is where Michael Bennett was really such a genius, because he's the one that would decide there should be a song here. And he's the one that would get with Marvin and Ed and say, this is, where the song, this is what the song should do. Mm-hmm. This is what you should write about. Mm-hmm. And he really gave them all this input. And, of course, they were brilliant. They'd go home and write it. And they'd come in the next day and they'd have it, usually. And I remember the first time that we were going to do At the Ballet, and I hadn't even done a vocal arrangement on it at that point. Mm-hmm. They just started out doing it in unison. And I couldn't wait. And I stayed up all night writing the vocal arrangement for the next day. So they'd start doing it. And that's one of my favorite moments in the show. It's a, it is a beautiful vocal arrangement. I think that whole thing in the show, the way it works, what those three girls do, it's so brilliant. <clears throat> and, of course, the cast was so brilliant. Because mm-hmm. they really, you know, they weren't playing themselves. They were playing somebody else. Right. Like the Donna McKechnie part, she was playing. There were about three different girls' stories mm-hmm. put together mm-hmm. for her. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the writers could do that just amazed me. Yeah. They could listen to those tapes and then put it into dialogue. And then find and something specific and really create these characters that are so, I mean, the characters are are so specific, so much so that, like, when the revival happened, they had the same positions on the post, yeah, yeah. you know, the way they oh, would yeah. stand yeah. there. Oh, I that's mean, all, like, that was they, Michael. That's just I remember incredible. the day he told us, put him in a straight line, he looked at him, he said, that looks awful. Now, all of you just, how would you stand? If I didn't tell you how to stand, how would you stand? Wow. And everybody just sort of hit their post. And that became, like, the... He said, that's good, keep it. <laughs> makes a good director in your opinion from a from a musical director conductor's point of view to make him think every idea is coming from him and not you <laughs> i'm serious no it's because it's so okay. true no it yeah is. you must i mean directors are very egocentric i don't know any that are not even though i don't mean that in a particular negative way i mean just that they are like that yeah. And therefore, I don't think they lie. I think they are good because they don't clutter their mind with a lot of extra material outside of their own thinking. That's part of their being good. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I, I, I was serious in what I said. I think anything, when you want a major change, you have to kind of talk about it in a way that they realize they can make that change. Mm-hmm. That you're not trying to say, make my change. Mm-hmm. But good. I think in general, you have to be that way working with any creative people, even an actor. Yeah. Talk about the music director actor relationship a little bit. How do you how do you approach a song with an actor? They're coming in on the first day, they've never learned this before. Here we go. I think it's different with every person. You you can sort of sense right away how they are acting uh, as to how you can, for for instance, like someone like like Georgia Brown, for instance, who I adored. Mm. I mean, Georgia was the kind on on any material, not not particularly all of it, because she already knew it because she'd done it in London. But I did work with her on concerts and things. You would just do something for her, and she was so fast. You didn't have to repeat anything for mm. her. It's like she got it the first time around. Now, some people, uh, George Hearn is, is amazingly, uh, he likes to break something down where he really knows exactly what it is. He doesn't want to know when, what note is that supposed to be. He mm. wants to know exactly. Yeah. And once he knows, he's got it. Musically. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. He's very solid. But I think it's hard to answer the question because I think every performer is different. Yeah. I don't, as a, as a conductor, musical director, I never force anything on anybody. I never even present it that way. I never say anything like, this is the way you've got to do it. I would never think or even act that way. Mm. It's like, I will say, I think it works well this way. And probably I will even say, I'll do it and say, I, I think it works very well this way. How do you feel about that? I always want to know what they're feeling. Mm. 
Do you, I think that's the answer. Monique. Do you ever discuss any of the acting, though? Not unless, not unless it'd be a friend who's in something. If we yeah. would, I would never do that. Woman of the year, woman of the, the your year. Second Bacall experience. Well, now the second Bacall. It's that's interesting. Right. It started. The second Bacall. <laughs> and your first candor, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, candor musical. Not yeah, you guys had the gig together. Right. Right. <laughs> we, that's the only time we ever worked together. Now I didn't start out woman of the year because I wasn't available. I was uh, doing other things. Jack Lee. That was his show. <clears throat> but then he had a heart attack, and I'd heard that he was out and. It was the timing is fantastic because I was getting very bored with Radio City. I thought I didn't want to stay here any longer. I want to mm-hmm. get out of this. And when I heard that he suddenly had to leave the show, and there was only like about three weeks, I think, before the show went in rehearsal, mm-hmm. I actually called the producer and I said, "Look, I'd be interested in that show if I can get out of my contract here." Mm-hmm. And of course, naturally, they were delighted to have me. The call couldn't have been more pleased. Yeah. So, and Fred Ebb, who I'd never worked with before, Fred was so funny. He was delightful. He was always very funny. He's the kind when you had a big number uh, to do with a company, and he would sit with me, and sometimes I've written something, but still we'd, even though you've written, you'll add things, something, just spontaneously start doing things. And he, he would be the kind of sitting there, yeah, I keep him saying, make it more complicated. Make it sound busier. Make it sound like it's more trouble than it is. You know, and he would always be saying these things in my ear. And he did. He just liked for everything to be so complex. Mm-hmm. Very funny. Brilliant writer. Mm. You were with Radio City Music Hall for something like 14 years or so? Well, off and on. Off and on. Mm-hmm. Off and on. Because, and I must say, I loved that. It was so wonderful to have this big symphonic orchestra. I mean. And, and these fabulous things on stage. And it was just... It was a dream come true. I'm yeah. sorry that I wish they'd been able to continue that way, but yeah. you know the public isn't ready for that, I guess. But we certainly did some lovely shows. Part of the Christmas show they do now, part of that is still what I did in 1979. Mm-hmm. Oh, how is fun. it? Yeah. So, in lieu of writing an autobiography, you have put together a one-man show, a maestro's memoirs. Yeah. A maestro's memoirs. Tell us a little bit about what audiences can expect when they see a maestro's memoirs. Well, uh, they see a great deal of what we've talked about today, except refined down to where it's a little more pointed. But it it really covers my career. I don't cover every show I've done. I only mm-hmm. do the major ones that I think the public would be interested in. Mm-hmm. But I do tell a lot of the very, very charming, funny stories and get a lot of laughs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I enjoyed. I've see. I've never been a performer on stage. This right. is my first time. Well, the, I would say the Hollywood Bowl concert from 1994. You have a very strong presence on stage, Don. Well, <laughs> as long as I'm with an orchestra. <laughs> okay, that's fair. But I mean, you that that show is all about you as yeah. much as anybody else. Well, I, I loved that. By the way, that was a marvelous thing. That was oh. like, come on. That's got. But you know, all that is done so fast. You yeah. have one orchestra rehearsal and you're on you're stage doing a show. It's that fast. Oh, man. Jeez. It's not something you spend days rehearsing at Boy, all. I love that overture. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Sorry, just so yeah. our listeners know, it's Jerry Herman at the Hollywood Bowl. Mm-hmm. And it's a celebration of Jerry Herman's work. Mm-hmm. Yes. Don is conducting. Yes. And you will see. Oh, my gosh. He's in like a white tug. Looks gorgeous. Looks stunning. The Hollywood oh, Bowl and those, orchestra. And those, and those performers. We oh, had my gosh. Such B. Arthur, Leroy Reams, Carol Leslie Morrow, Uggams. Who I love. Oh, oh, I'll tell you a funny story. Yeah. It just came to mind with B. Arthur. <laughs> Carol Channing, we was in the afternoon, we had to rehearse B's number with yeah. the orchestra. And over in the, there's a staircase, as you remember, a staircase mm-hmm. people come down. This is daylight time. Carol Channing is going up and down the steps because she's memorizing them because she has to come down them that night. Oh, my God. When it's dark and a spotlight is in her yeah. eyes and you can't see, and Carol's that kind of performer. She's she going really to make sure she doesn't have to see those steps to come down them. And now B is standing beside me, and, it's, and B is watching her go up and down the steps, up and down the steps, up and down the steps. And now it's time I start the intro to B's number, and B leans over, leans over and says, how do we turn her off? <laughs> those, I mean, I mean, to say that to me, and I'm playing the intro. You know, and then suddenly it's time for her to sing. Yeah, so. totally. She nails it, probably. <laughs> That's amazing. Those little, those little things, you know, your yeah. life is full of moments like that. Totally. And then finally, before we go, what advice would you give to students that want to become music directors, people that want to follow in Don Pippin's footsteps? Well, I think before we even get into the music, 
they really give some look and thought to what they're like as a person in relation to how do they get along with people. Mm. I usually say they should study a few years of good psychology maybe before <laughs> they start doing music because I think a conductor must be able to communicate with the performer and also listen to the performer and help them what they need. So you're having to be almost more a person. You are a musician, I think. Right. Well, you you mentioned that you work with the performer, but also the orchestra, also the creatives, also yes. all these personality types. So I think uh, I think a student should be well aware of what do they lack as a person. Do they get along with people? Do people like them? Because you better find out why they don't, if that's a negative yeah. response. And then I think because otherwise you can be a great. Unless you're going to become such a big... See, you can be nasty after you're an important conductor, but not when you're starting. As we know, there's some big names that aren't so nice, they hear. But I don't think they started that way. They got that way. Yeah, this is true. But that's a, that's a horse of another color. <laughs> <laughs> and you have never been that way. I hope not. No, no way. You I hope not. <laughs> I'm not like that. Next week, we sit down with poster designer Frank Verlizzo, whose works include the original poster art of Death Trap, Sweeney Todd, The Lion King, plus hundreds of others in his 40-year career. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying The Quiet Part Out Loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.